Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Christopher Dickey reported from Paris and from war zones and published seven books, including a powerful memoir about growing up with his father, the poet and author James Dickey. I had the opportunity to speak with Dickey several times over the years, usually about geopolitical hotspots around the world, places where his unique reporting skills enabled him to see not only the politics, but the cultural heart of what he was reporting. His reports and books were more than just words and analysis. However, our most memorable conversation, and the one I share here, was about his memoir. Memoirs have, over recent years, become a genre unto themselves. But what Dickey uniquely does in his is to turn the tables and report on himself. Here's my conversation from September of 1998 with Christopher Dickey. Christopher, good morning. Good morning. First of all, this book, much of it, much of your relationship with your father in the later years came about after a 20-year separation. Talk about how you went home again after all that time and how the separation happened in the first place. Well, the separation happened because as I got older and was able to get away from my father, I felt desperately that I had to. He was drinking more and more. He was... He lived on this kind of combination of adulation and alcohol uh, that was almost impossible to endure for anybody who was really close to him and wanted to relate to him uh, as, as a son or a wife or a daughter. Uh, and so I got married at 18, and uh, as I got a little bit older and became a journalist, as soon as I could be a foreign correspondent, I was gone, long gone, and, uh, and building a whole different life of my own. But, you know, you can't just write off people that you love, uh, even if you're incredibly angry with them, uh, and, and especially your parents. So what happened as I was getting older, at the time I was about 43, 44, I found everything I was doing wound up, everything I was trying to write wound up sort of turning itself toward stories of fathers and sons. And my wife, who's really much more perceptive than I am, finally said to me, look, you've you got to go home. You've got to try and, try and have some kind of understanding with your father. So I did, <clears throat> and it didn't work right at first. But then when he got sick, uh, he had alcoholic hepatitis, he quit drinking. And all of a sudden, it was like a curtain had been pulled back. Huh. And we were able to talk to each other, really talk to each other for the first time in 20 years, and, and more than reconcile. I mean, I, those were probably the happiest times I ever had with my father. When you first went back, before he stopped drinking and, and you made the first forays back to, to, to make contact with him, was there a fear that you had that somehow this was going to pull you down, that it was sort of journeying into a heart of darkness that you weren't sure you wanted to go into? Absolutely, there, it, it was. I mean, I felt like I really had to tell my thing, myself things like, <clears throat> look, you've covered wars, you've seen horrible things, you can go back and face your father in Columbia, South Carolina. But there was a part of me that felt I was going to get dragged down, sucked into the really crazy life that he was leading then. His, his wife was also drinking terribly. She'd had problems with drug addiction. Uh, and I thought, my God, I mean, do I want to touch that? Do I want to, to, to put myself emotionally at risk like that? But I, I really didn't have any choice. And then the, the other thing that happened is that my, my young sister, uh, whom I really had never known at all, was 13 then, and so bright, and had so much potential, that I wanted to try and at least do something for her. And in trying to help her, 
Uh, and then later, in actually in working on this book, my father and I found a lot of common ground and found ways to talk to each other, bridge the gap. You mentioned earlier that, that you got married and left at 18 and became a foreign correspondent and, 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 and sought ways to take you as far away from those days as possible. But yet, the career you pursued had to essentially do with writing. And how much of that was the influence of your father? Well, it, it, for me, it was really writing was sort of the path of, <clears throat> excuse me, the path of least resistance. Uh, I originally wanted to make movies and, and, uh, and even be a cinematographer. Uh, but even when I got into the fringes of the movie business, all, <clears throat> all anybody wanted me to do was write. So I, I sort of backed into that profession. But there's an essential difference between my father and myself, uh, not, and not only the fact that he's a genius and I'm not. Uh, and that is the way we look at the question of the truth and the experience of life. My father believed that you could always improve on life by imagining it, by lying about it, uh, even in, in his conversations with his own family. Uh, I love the truth. I love facts because I find that I am always surprised by them and that things happen and people do things and events develop that are absolutely beyond the power of myself or most people to invent. And so that's the essential difference. There's an element of, of, of the way your father approached the truth, an element of the way he sort of reinvented himself and made up stories and imagined experiences that he had, some of the things that you talk about in the book. There's an element to that that's kind of, that was kind of ahead of its time. I mean, nowadays we talk about sort of making up the truth and imagining and reinventing ourselves in a way that it's not dissimilar from some of the things that your father did early on. Well, I think that's probably true. Uh, <clears throat> to the extent that he, he told certain kinds of stories for the sake of his image, uh, he exaggerated his football career, he exaggerated slightly his uh, military exploits. He tended often to clean up the facts of his life to make it easier for interviewers to write them down. <clears throat> that certainly uh, was ahead of its time and was almost certainly influenced by his uh, career of several years as an advertising man, a copywriter. Uh -huh. Um, but the other part of what my father did was really much deeper than that and in some ways much more disturbing. You know, he would tell me when I was about eight or nine that he had been married before and that this first wife who he'd met in Australia had died of blood poisoning. And I believed that until I was in my 40s and we were getting back together and talking about all sorts of things. And I said, just tell me about that. And he said, no, I just made that up. Hmm. I said, why? And he said, just because I thought it was kind of an interesting thing to do. At what point in your life did you realize that much of what, what your father was telling you that, that was, was made up, that a lot of the history, a lot of the stories really had no basis in truth? And how, what was your reaction to that? Well, it was a sort of a gradual realization. I mean, I, I was aware in a, in a vague way that that was what was going on when I was a kid. I mean, a little boy. And he would tell stories about me to people in my presence that I knew were not true. Uh, he would say we had done things that I knew we had not done. Uh, but I didn't see it as part of the, the pattern, as part of the conscious pattern that he was developing, uh, really until after we were reconciled, and he wanted to set the record straight about a lot of things. And so as we would talk about various events in our lives, uh, for instance, and various things he had said, for instance, the question of this first wife, he would, uh, he would want to set the record straight, and then I became aware of how pervasive this was. Also, <clears throat> 
I became aware uh, about 10 years ago when he published his novel Al-Nilam, which is about a messianic uh, young boy, a young man in uh, World War II who tries to subvert the entire Air Force, and about his father trying to find out what was going on after the boy is killed. Uh, my father started telling people that this crazy figure in the book was modeled on, on his son, Chris. <laughs> and I thought, you know, what is he talking about? Um, and then I read letters that he wrote to my mother uh, when she was pregnant with me. And he was describing me as the parasitical vision from the loin. And uh, it was really all the imagery was sort of drawn from the golden bow. And I, I was just amazed. I, he had had this vision of me as a kind of messianic <coughs> and parasitical figure uh, from before I was born. And it, and it stayed with him, and he developed it as another one of his fictions throughout his life. So it was a little bit difficult to deal with. And talk about how he incorporated these fictions and these notions into his work. You talk in the book about, particularly in some of his final lectures at the University of South Carolina, when he talked about the role and meaning of poetry, and it, it, it sort of relates to some of this uh, lack of truth-telling that, that goes on. Well, he belie- believed in the creative power of the lie <clears throat> in his life, and in a sense he was always experimenting with lies and with images and with stories because he thought somehow he could incorporate that into his work. Uh, he loved dreams. Uh, he loved uh, coincidences that you could build on and make something more of. And in the end, in, in this beautiful, in his last class that he ever gave, which was recorded, fortunately, uh, he talks about teaching God a thing or two. He, he talks about the power of the poet to invent and to imagine the world. <clears throat> the world. And you see that in his in his writing, and in, and in the best of his writing. I mean, some of it is truly bizarre, but it is absolutely beautiful. There's a poem, for instance, called The Sheep Child that is told from the point of view of this little uh, uh, fetus that's been created uh, by, uh, by a man and a, and a sheep having intercourse uh, that's on a, in a bottle full of formaldehyde on a dusty shelf in a museum in Atlanta. And it is a wild idea for a poem, but it is an absolutely beautiful poem about uh, human need and the need for love. And, uh, and, and I mean, who, who could imagine those kinds of things except a man who wanted to live in his imagination? His greatest fame really came for uh, certainly deliverance and, and his novels, even though he was at heart uh, a poet. How did he feel about that? Well, he always took great pains to say that he was a poet, or as he would often say, just a poet, uh, with false modesty. But, in fact, he loved the adulation from deliverance that he got as a result of deliverance. And I think one of the problems I had with him when I was in my late teens and early 20s was that he was tremendously demanding of everyone around him and had been tremendously demanding of himself uh, as far as art was concerned, uh, about the discipline that's needed to create art, about the perfection that has to be sought. And he had wanted the movie of Deliverance uh, to be his movie, and he had wanted it to be perfect the way he wanted it to be. And, of course, <clears throat> once the rights are sold and Hollywood's uh, named a director and uh, the millions of dollars are involved, it becomes very much a, communal, a, a group project 
and my father was eventually even even expelled from the set. And he didn't like the movie all that much uh, when it came out, uh, but he loved to tell people that it was his movie and it was a great movie, and he loved the way people flocked around him and said, oh, my, did you write Deliverance? Weren't you the sheriff in Deliverance? Uh-huh. Uh, and And that was about the point at which we lost him. What happened at that point? What happened to him? Well, he, you, he became convinced that any, anything he did was the right thing to do. And he became, he drank more and more. Uh, his affairs became more and more public. Uh, he basically reached the point where he much preferred the company of his fans to the company of his family. Uh-huh. Uh, and my mother, uh, to whom he was often really very gratuitously cruel, uh, began to drink much more, much more heavily and constantly until she drank herself to death at the age of 50. Oh. Talk a little bit about who he admired. Whose work did he look up to? Well, one of the games that he loved to play... Was a play. It was a game where you sit around and say, "Let's try and figure out who the greatest poets really are." <laughs> and uh, and usually, the last two names on the list were William Butler Yeats and uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, the German poet. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were a lot of others uh, there on the way to those uh, to those last two. Um, you know, he, he admired Gerard Manley Hopkins. There were some poets <clears throat> who were incredibly obscure that he professed to admire. And I think that was partly just so he could say he had rediscovered them. One was H. Phelps Putnam, another was named Trumbull Stickney. Uh-huh. Uh, but in terms of those names that people would actually know, uh, I think he, as, as a poet and as a man, I think he had a, a real special feeling about Randall Jarrell. Uh, who was enormously kind to my father and helpful to my father uh, when my father was just beginning to get a name as a poet uh, back in the 50s. So I would say those are just a few of the ones that really interested him. He was one of the best-read men, my father, that, that you could ever meet. And his opinions would change, but they were always phenomenally well-informed and based on his vast, vast reading. You talk about in the book how uh, you traveled around so much in your youth, everywhere from uh, you lived everywhere from I think Houston, Texas, and the San Fernando to the San Fernando Valley to uh, Cap d'Antibes and uh, other places as well. well. How much though does the South play in, in in his life and in your upbringing? It's, it seems like no matter how much you moved around, the South plays a very critical role in in his life and yours. Well, he was a Southerner. I mean, sort of in the lowest ebb of his his life, one could say he'd become a professional Southerner. Uh, but but I, certainly growing up in the South had a tremendous effect on him. Uh, but, but he was more than a Southerner, he was an Atlantan. Uh, and Atlanta is a very particular place in the South. It's um, much more cosmopolitan and much newer than most of the cities uh, in the South. It was not a city based on slavery, it was a city based on commerce. Uh, it always had a sort of broader view of the world and uh, much more of a mix of cultures and people uh, than you would you would normally associate with uh, with other southern cities. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I think that he, he felt a part of Atlanta society and, and 
reacted to that, both embracing it and rejecting it at various points in his life. But he was a little bit more of a voyeur, an outsider, when he would write about uh, the mountain people of the South, when he'd go out into the rural South. He didn't really have much direct experience of that, except when he was uh, little and his father, who was an inveterate gambler, would take him to, to chicken fights up in North Georgia, that kind of thing. But he always felt himself separate from that. You know, he wrote a poem called Listening to Foxhounds, where men sit around listening to their, sit around a campfire and listening to their foxhounds in the woods and betting on them and talking about them. And in the poem, my father identifies with a fox. And I think that, uh, that gives you an idea of how he related to that particular part of society. And, of course, deliverance is about that. Right. It's about men from Atlanta who go out over the hori- just over the horizon into the mountains and meet with terrible dangers and fear and violence. One of the things that uh, you mention in the book are all of these people that your father attracted as sort of fans, admirers, all these uh, people that, that, that essentially, in, in one form or another, I suppose, uh, sat at the, at, the, at the feet of the great man. How did that impact on your relationship with him, that he had all of these other sort of almost surrogate sons that, that were around him sometimes? Well, it, it, in some cases, he used that as a way of, um, of pushing me out of his life. Uh, I was too problematic. I made too many demands. I made the demands, the kinds of demands that sons make on fathers, mm-hmm. including demands for love and attention. And... Uh, and you know, it's easier to deal with people who basically come to you and admire you enormously, uh, want you desperately uh, to be, to accept them as surrogate sons or daughters or, or wives or whatever. It's much easier to relate to fans than it is to family. Uh-huh. And, okay. and uh, so that was, that was a bit of a problem sometimes, although it's also true that the ones who really did become closest to him like Michael Allen, uh, are among my very closest friends in the world. Michael really is like a brother to me. Do you ever think about what would have happened if you had not gone back, if you had not made that journey at the urging of your wife or or, or whatever? Yeah, I do, and I'm almost afraid to think what it would be like. I don't think, if if he had died and and I had never been able to reconcile with him, then I don't think I could ever have felt like a complete person. I think I always would have felt like there was this enormous void inside me. And, and I might not even have been able to identify it, but it would have been there. Now I feel the loss of him tremendously, but it's a different kind of loss. I just miss him. You know, it's not that, it's not that horrible existential black hole. But you also say, it's interesting, you say somewhere in the book that, that even when you were separated from him during those 20 years, that in a way you missed him as well. I absolutely did. And throughout that period, I mean, this is the irony, throughout that period, both of us would make kind of token efforts to get back together, to see each other, to, 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 to put things back on a more even uh, and sensible track. But but we couldn't do it. Um, we, would, we would meet briefly, he'd be drunk, uh, or we'd meet for a morning and he'd be fine, but then in the afternoon he'd check out. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and it would, and you just, it, it, we couldn't get anything going. We couldn't, we couldn't break through the barriers uh, of anger and misunderstanding and, and just distance. Um, 
that's why, in fact, the book itself, I started writing it before my father died, and the book itself was partly a vehicle to bring us back together, to make us talk, right. and, and to help us understand each other. Now, your brother and, and, and your half-sister, how, how did their relationships with your father ultimately resolve themselves? Well, um, I think all of us grew much closer to my father the last two years of his life, um, and that was good. I, I, wish, I wish that my brother had been able to, to break away uh, and, and spend more time with my father than he was able to do. He's a very, very busy physician, my brother, uh, and I, I know that he wishes that too. Um, and my sister was enormously close to my father, uh, and, uh, but we all have slightly different relations because the, the, our ages are quite separate. My brother is seven years younger than me and my sister 30 years younger. So we all have different perceptions. But I, I do think that all of us see in the pages of the book the same man that we knew. And, um, and I think that um, in some ways the book probably has helped my brother to understand my father uh, and us better. Christopher Dickey, the book is Summer of Deliverance, a memoir of a father and son. Thank you so much for being with us today. Listen, thank you very much.